good ones who made it in this morning, good and right and beautiful, who actually have the privilege to not come in on a Sunday morning, but nonetheless, we serve an amazing Lord, and it is always wonderful to come into his presence and to consider his word. So as we get going together this morning, uh, after that wonderful reflection on where Mary's heart was in the midst of an incredibly complicated and complex moment, let's lift our hearts up to God too as we prepare ourselves to consider his word. Lord Jesus, even as we stand here now, it is an admittedly strange thing to pray to you even as we consider your birth and we have this strangely intimate insight into the life of your mother. Lord, as we approach, give us a proper humility before your word. Also give us a proper humility before your character. And as always, Lord Jesus, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that might be softened by your word so that seeing you in this text, we might then turn our hearts towards you. We might all the more set aside the ways that we would set all kinds of things on the thrones of our heart. And that, Lord, we would we would delight to recognize, not, not to set you back there again, because indeed you never leave, but to acknowledge the ways that you are there and that you patiently endure with us even when we would set other things there. And so, Lord, again, please bless this time in your word and use it to strengthen our hearts, to draw us closer to you, and to equip us then to, by loving you, more clearly tell of your love to the world around us. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. I wanted to lean in this morning to um, the Magnificat, to Mary's response with Elizabeth, celebrating what God is doing both in Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, as well as in Mary's moment of, you know, she's withdrawn in order to prepare herself for what is coming. And just to look at the response, especially today as we stand on just one morning after celebrating Christmas ourselves, to think through what was on Mary's heart and why the author of the gospel, Luke, takes her response to what God is doing and sets it in a prime spot at the entrance of his gospel. Um, just to give a little bit of context, the, the book of Luke opens up. We're still in the first chapter, obviously, but the, the first chapter matters because this is, this is what is being set in place. You know, Luke is telling us what to expect. He's telling us a bit of what's going on, and then he's setting up the characters, and he's setting up their responses and their relationships. And so as, as he leans in, we get the introduction saying, hey, here's who I am. Here's how I want to do these things. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, um, and he introduces his path. And then he starts his narrative, verse 5, he says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Which would be a significant introduction because Herod was universally known as an awful king. Um, he shouldn't have been there for all kinds of reasons. If you look into the history of well, who were the Herods and how did they become the kings of Judea? 
do that research, it's a mess. Wikipedia can tell you all you'd ever need to know. You don't even have to dig much deeper than that. It's there. Um, and so we're in the context of Herod, king of Judea. And then in that same verse, verse 5, we get, and there was a priest named Zechariah. And Zechariah is a you know, well-established priest, um, comes from the right family, and is even married into the right family. His wife, Elizabeth, comes from the daughters of Aaron. This is the, the priesthood that's all the way down. And within the priesthood, there is a core family within the priesthood of the Levites. There is the Aaronic line. And so his wife was from the, the core of the priestly family. Zechariah gets this vision of an angel as he's in the favored job, one that is only, um, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity in the career of a priest and it's one that's assigned only by God's leading and kind of the drawing of lots. And when Zechariah fulfills this responsibility, going into the temple at a, a key moment in the worship calendar, suddenly what happens in there but an angel meets him and the glory shines around him and he speaks to him wonderful things. And Zechariah's response, as you may recall, is in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, prove it to me. How am I going to know that this is true, right? And I mean, you got to imagine the position of Gabriel, the angel, in this moment. He's like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm an angel. I'm appearing to you in the center of worship in the Holy of Holies on this day. What more do you want from me? This is the proof, you know? Um, and then Zechariah gets struck dumb which is a, a shocking thing, because the priest who enters, what would he want to then do? What would he be called to do? What is his responsibility in his office as priest to do? He has just received the word of the Lord. He should walk out, and what is his first job? But to then proclaim it. And so he walks out. You can imagine how big his eyes were. And everybody goes, what would you see? And he goes, and he can't talk about it because he's struck dumb. And then we get to Mary. Now, I loved Harrison's introduction of Mary from a couple of weeks back, describing where Nazareth was. It's this podunk town. It's like the equivalent right now of a, like a, a one gas station exit along 95. You know, where you just pull off and you get the sketchy shell station and you fill up real fast and get back in and get out of there. Like, that's the area. That's where Mary's from. The, the genealogies we have are of Joseph's line. They're not of Mary's line. So Mary's not, not particularly a person of awesome repute. It's in a nowhere place with a nowhere person. She's a woman and in that culture. Uh, even worse than the ways that the differences between men and women get played out today. And she's a young woman. And think about how we talk about teenagers today. You know, she's a teen. She's the, the lowest of the low in many ways. Um, and so she receives this news. And if you look with me in verse 28, consider how the angel greets her. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. Now remember, this is the context of Herod. We have a geopolitical ruler. God's favor does not land with him. 
then consider Zechariah. We have even a religious leader. And, and I'm not saying that Zechariah is held up as a negative example. Zechariah is held up as a human example. He's like the rest of us. Zechariah is even held up as a faithful example because if any of us think that in, in Zechariah's place we'd do much differently, I, I think we're, we're kind of fooling ourselves a little bit. Um, and then we get to Mary, and, and she's addressed as, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And I think we have to begin with our context of understanding Mary and her response by, in the Magnificat, which we'll look at in the latter section, which we had read for us. Um, we have to understand this is who she is. Now, now, favored one, I'm not saying that she's favored because she's awesome. And so the call of this text is that we should then become awesome like Mary is awesome. I think kind of the opposite is happening because what does God do? God meets the nobodies in their nobodiness in order to dump his love and mercy and favor and grace upon them so that when they get held up, they are not saying, hey, look at me. They're saying, look at what God has done for me. And when we say, look at what God has done for me, we are saying, consider and see what God can do for you. And we're not saying, hey, come be like me. We're saying, hey, come to the one who loves people even like me. And so when, when Mary gets this, part of her favor, part of the favor that God has bestowed upon her is a heart that is soft and an attitude that meeting the favor of the Lord believes it. And then in response turns and magnifies him. And this is important because in our own lives, I think we're tempted to magnify and to favor the wrong things. We are easily, we are obviously tempted to magnify our political leadership. I mean, it, that's just the way that it works. Even if we're helping, we think that there's a great candidate who is even legitimately perhaps a great candidate. What do we do? We go and we tell everybody how great he is. We build up his name. We magnify him. And that, that's not wrong that is wrong when we magnify him and we put him in the place of our God and our Savior. We are even tempted to magnify, as the text demonstrates here, our religious leadership. And that is absolutely wrong. Because we're tempted to say, well, where would the Lord's favor rest? Well, certainly on that dude who's behind the pulpit. And and. I pray that that would be the case, but, but anybody standing up here and behind the pulpit is no sign that I am any better off, that my heart is doing any better than yours. In fact, anyone who stands behind the pulpit, the key qualifica qualification for us to be here is to do kind of what Mary is modeling for us as well, is to say, no, not me, but look at what God has done. The whole job of anybody standing here is to say, no, I am completely unworthy. My life has done absolutely nothing to earn this. In fact, I'm holding up my life as an example of unworthiness so that you might recognize how unworthy your life is and so that we then together might say, good heavens, God, what are you doing? But good heavens, look at what God is doing. And it's that, that complicated Mix, which is why Mary becomes such a complicated person, not only in her own moment, but across church history as well.
and why it's all the more beautiful, I think, to pause and to consider her words. See, we are tempted to magnify the wrong things. But God's response to that, and God's response and provision to us in that problem is to say, yeah, okay, okay, okay. But I am going to magnify you. And he does that not by saying, look how great you are, but by saying, look how much I can do in you. Look how much I can heal you. Look how much I can provide security and foundation for you when you don't have any of your own. Look how much I can take you, a person who nobody cares about, and draw you into the middle of my gospel story unfolding across history, Mary. And this is exactly who Jesus is, specifically, certainly for Mary, but this is who Jesus is for us as well. God saying, no, I, you are the center of my focus. I will magnify you. I will build you up because my heart has been set on you from the very beginning, and I will find you, and I will not rest until I bring you home to me. This, this is what Mary is magnifying. This is what Mary is celebrating, and this is what she is building up, because though we're tempted to magnify the wrong things, God, in response to that, magnifies us in Jesus Christ, and then our call in that, again, I mean, we've said it plenty of times already, but the call is then to magnify him, which is what we have in the Magnificat, which is the fancy Latin way to say this incredible and beautiful song that Mary sings as the outpouring response of her heart towards God's mercy in her. So the question that I kind of want to ask and answer a little bit is, what does it actually mean to magnify the Lord? I'm going to read our passage again. Verse 46, chapter 1 of Luke. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has filled the hungry I'm sorry, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He spoke to our, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. I think the first thing that this means is to praise God. And that seems like a very simple and very kind of um, obvious point but the first thing that Mary does is she stops, she drops everything else, and she praises him. Uh, you know, she's on her way to go see Elizabeth. Elizabeth says, whoa, I just felt my baby boy jump in a way that he has not jumped before. Blessed are you, blessed am I, because I get to be in your presence. And Mary answers, my soul magnifies the Lord. She doesn't say, whoa, 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 don't bless me, don't look at me. She says, yes, look at what God is doing. Look at what God is doing for me. Look at what God is doing in me. Look at what God is doing. This sets the stage to understanding the whole rest of the song. 
this is not a theological framework, which is principally, if you look at the commentaries and things, the ways that every one of them, and, and rightly so, leans into this is to start to go, wow, look at all the different dots that Mary is connecting. This is a song from a woman who is, as one commentator said it, steeped in the teachings of the Old Testament. Um, this echoes Miriam's response to God. This echoes, um, oh shoot, now I'm blanking on her name, Elijah, uh, <laughs> Samuel's mother, Hannah, thank you. Hannah's response to God, this echoes so many things throughout the, the Old Testament. But, but first and foremost, this is a young teenage woman just answering God in the moment she is, which is also the moment that God is. This is first and foremost not a theological framework, though it is that too. It is first and foremost a teenage song of delight offered to God. Um, even drafting this sermon and working through it, I was tempted to look over the different things and see how Jesus fulfills each aspect and element of this. And yes, we can do that. And even, yes, we should do that. But for our purposes this morning, I want to set that aside and just say, this is Mary answering God. And this is a song of delight. And we have to meet it there first. Um, Dane Ortland, the author of a book, Gentle and Lowly, a pastor um, in our denomination, and kind of reflecting on this relationship, he says, it is one thing to describe what your spouse or your husband says and does and looks like. It is something else, something deeper and more real to describe his heart for you. And that's what Mary is doing in this psalm. She's not just saying, look at God. He is strong. He is mighty. He likes low people. He sets people up. He's always flipping things. Way to go, God. You rock. Um, she's, she's describing and celebrating the love and the posture that God has taken towards her. That's a very different thing. I can say to you, my wife, Lindsay, has sandy blonde hair, is medium height, um, has blue eyes, is joyful, very intelligent, um, and does amazing things in how she plans out the details of our home and even in the ways that she takes care of me. And that's wonderful. But it is something entirely different for me to say, Lindsay, my wife, approaches me with a deep ambition for who God has made me. And she humbles me in the gifts that she sees in me and the ways that she fiercely fights for them. She also humbles me in the ways that in that she then goes even on the attack against me, not to tear me down, but to dare, tear down the parts of me that are sinful so that she might then invest in building me up. Her love sets me back in my chair and makes me awe at who God is with the way that she cares for my children, with the way that she humbly gets to know me, and with the ways that she dreams of our future together. And it's an entirely different thing then to take those two things and then turn to the person and say those things to her. If I say on a date to my wife, hey babe, you've got sandy blonde hair, and you've got beautiful blue eyes. That's good, right? But it is better to do the other. And, and I don't mean that just in um, marriage relationships. That's any kind of relationship. Thinking this through and thinking through applications for this, 
I thought, how beautiful is this? Yes, we're to respond to God in this way, but we are also called to respond to one another in this way. And so I, I wrote to one of my longtime friends and I said, um, Wes, you have always met me in a way that builds an easy trust, that cultivates a mutual curiosity and joy in life and makes it natural and comfortable to share with you my fears as well as my challenges. You've walked with me through many things and honored me with close parts of your own heart and story as well. Thank you for loving me in those ways. I recognize that those are not just things you've done, but the fruit of your heart and friendship. I appreciate you. I'm frequently encouraged by you, and I always take great joy in the times we, we reconnect. I love you. Thank you for being my friend. That, that rekindles so much love. The, the response that he sent to me was equally beautiful and equally anchored me in our friendship and in our relationship. And so what Mary is doing here, this is a love song. And this is a love song back to God. Yes, the things she describes about God are good and true. But though the focus is not on what God is doing. The focus is on who he is. The work that is described is evidence of his character. And what is being celebrated is the core of his identity and the core of their relationship. This matters. Well, this matters because that's what God wants from us. He's not interested in us just writing another commentary on him. Commentaries are important. Commentaries are wonderful. Commentaries are even beautiful. But what he wants first and foremost is our heart's response to him. This is kind of hard to do. But nonetheless, this is our call before him. And as we'll get into a little bit further, our first point of application would be to start to pray this way. Next time you talk to God, praise him, magnify him, tell him how he has loved you, tell him what that does for your heart in his love. Now here's where it anchors down a little bit more deeply too because Mary is no fool. What, what does a, an out-of-wedlock marriage do for a young woman in a podunk town, a one-gas-station exit kind of town where everybody goes to the same school? That's not exactly going to launch her into the closest circles of friendship. Um, in a you know, hyper-religious community, what's that going to do? Later on, there are stories told of Jesus intervening in a woman caught in the act of adultery. And what do people do? They pick up big rocks and they throw them at, well, they would throw them at her until she is crushed dead. The path ahead for Mary is clearly hard. It is clearly difficult. It is no just song of praise all the time. What Mary doesn't even know yet is that what's going to come is she's going to have to run and live as a refugee for multiple years. That all the people in that hometown, all the kids that were Jesus' age, they're going to get killed. There is a local genocide that King Herod is going to rain down where Jesus will not have any male friends his age when they move back. Why? Because he was born. She gets told when they go into the temple that a sword will pierce her own soul also as this son of hers divides the hearts and the thoughts of many. 
And yet, and yet, the right response to God's presence and God's love in our life is that our souls would magnify him. I'm going to press on. Um, what else does it mean to magnify the Lord? Well, in verse 48 through 50, it says, um, essentially, it means that we celebrate God in our stories. Mary says, For he looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Because again, Mary's acknowledging there is greatness that is poured out on her. And she is a nobody. And she legitimately is by the standards of how life and everything functions. And not just then, but how we function. She is a nobody. But she is, a not, she is not a nobody to God. And she cries out and prays. This is... The things that she says reveal a lot about who she is. She is keenly aware of her estate as being humble. She is keenly aware of how no one should remember her. She is keenly aware of how God intervening in her life directly would be a great thing. Part of the call in this is to be reminded that you are not just another face in the crowd in God's story. Mary is not just another face in the crowd of God's love for his people broadly, but rather his love is focused, his love is direct, his love is intentional, his love is personal. That's why what Mary's saying is, you know, what God is doing um, is before and beyond anything else that is going to change, and she gets into that in a minute, what is changing is her. What is changing is her story. What God is doing is not just global, though it is. What God is doing is massively personal in her as well. What would that do to you to suddenly see God's favor that directly in your life? Part of my story is I have this tendency to believe that I am just a part of the crowd. Now, intellectually, I know better than that, but the patterns of my heart and the rhythms of my heart say to me, for whatever reasons, Drew, you're not that special. Drew, you are loved because of your membership, not because of your identity. Drew, practice well, perform well, because there you will find your belonging. And God's story tells us something massively differently. Um, recently, there's an artist whom I love very deeply. Uh, his name is Josh Jensen, and his works are incredible. Um, he's an abstract artist, uh, and he deals in beauty very profoundly. Um, I followed his work for a long time. I'm brief acquaintances with him through some connections, um, and we've had minor conversations. I one time reached out just to ask, so Josh, how much do your paintings go for? Just, you know, imagining and dreaming. And he sent back a number that was astronomically beyond anything that I could, I could uh, afford. Um, and then he sent back, as you can imagine, where the story is going, the, but sometimes, Drew, I love to donate things to people in ministry. And he did. And I thought, well, that's wonderful. So then I 
He lives, uh, lived a couple hours from where I used to live, so I drove out to go pick up this beautiful painting. And uh, he had some time, and so we sat on his front porch and we talked for a little while, and, and he said, you know, um, Drew, I love that you reached out for this because um, weeks ago as I was finishing this one up, I was driving along and I was talking to my wife, and I, I said, you remember that guy, Drew, we met a while ago? I think I'd love to give this one to him. And that was before I had reached out to him, before I'd been in any conversation with him, before anything. And, and it was about the very painting that I, weeks later, had then asked him about. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to say, God is magically intervening to do. I'm just trying to say, in that moment, God cared for me personally. According to something that was deeply beautiful, it doesn't serve some practical purpose. Oh, yes, and I would argue art does serve very practical purposes. Um, God reaches in and he knows us personally. Now that has fueled me for years. How has God fueled your story? How has he known you personally? Part of magnifying him is to say, to proclaim, to celebrate, to speak it back to him and to speak it to others around us. Not just the theological truths of God, though important, don't hear me not saying that, but the personal truths of God. How has he mattered to you? How has he formed and changed you? Ephesians 2.10 brings this out so beautifully um, where the Apostle Paul, in writing to his people, gives us the wonderful and famous sections that we are rightly so familiar with. Um, you know, of chapter 2. When you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, lists all these things in verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. And we get down to verse 10. Kind of the why, what this does for us is he says, for we are his workmanship. And the Greek word there is poema, which is where we get the word for poetry, for craftsmanship, for beauty, refined and developed intentionally. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Mary is responding not just to the profound truths of who God is. Mary is responding to the profound truths that God has communicated to the love with which he has crafted her and her story. And we are called, similarly, to respond with the profound truths of how God has crafted you wonderfully and beautifully. If you know him, this should continue to fuel your heart and your love for him for the rest of our lives, of course. If you don't know him, this is a deep invitation to not have to build your story yourself, to not have to run from your story yourself, but to turn and to face it and to see God working in and through it and in spite of it, thwarting what, what the devil and life and evil people would accomplish for evil and accomplishing good in its place. This is an invitation to know the Jesus who cares for who you are, even if you are the lowest of the low. This is an invitation and this is a model of answering God's incredibly profound and beautiful call with your own personal heart. And finally, and we'll, we'll work through this quickly, what does it mean to magnify the Lord? Well, it means to celebrate what God is doing in God's story. 
um, the final section of this lead that out wonderfully as she starts to roll through some of the characteristics of God. He has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the, the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy he has sp- as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What God is doing on a personal level, he is also doing on the global level as well. He's no God of cold, linear progression. This is God deeply and beautifully at work. Um, One thing I read on this passage, um, one woman theologian said, every discussion of biblical womanhood should include the fact that in Luke 1, two pregnant women celebrate their new motherhood by passionately discussing the coming overthrow of every earthly empire. And that is exactly what is happening. That is exactly what is happening. Because these two women see the favor of God on them. An old woman who has been barren for her entire life. I got to imagine there have been miscarriages. I got to imagine there's public shame. And suddenly in her old age, she is shockingly pregnant. And a young woman who is again shockingly pregnant outside of wedlock. And yet God is doing in that moment incredible things for them, but also massive things for the entire timeline of all of creation from the very beginning to the very end. Because the woman in Mary, I'm sorry, the the person in woman in Mary's womb, the baby, the child, the man, Jesus Christ, is the one who in Revelation will introduce himself as the very beginning and the very end the one who died and who now lives again, the one who holds in his hand the keys of death and hell. What is happening is the overthrow of all earthly empires. Consider, what does our heart do? What does our heart lift up and magnify? Um, If you remember, I don't know if it's, popular anymore, um, the old comic strip, Dilbert. Uh, I used to read those all the time as a kid. That's why, you know, we'd grab the newspaper and throw everything else away and grab the, you know, the comics on Sunday morning. Um, We had this collection of them, and in one of them, Dilbert has a dog, Dogbert, who is famously cynical, and in one comic strip, he describes, yeah, aren't we all just pain-collecting organisms spiraling towards death? I want to tell you, the reason that Mary sings here is because that is not true. The reason that Mary sings here is because she has seen and been met by a hope that stretches from the very beginning and that extends to the very end, that acts globally and that acts historically and yet also acts personally and individually. So that as she stands before God himself, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and in my spirit 
or, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And here we stand 2,000 years later saying the same thing. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. This is the fulfillment of mighty prophecies and we should all long for all earthly empires to be overthrown by this king, this one who came in the womb of Mary, this one who came personally, this one who came personally for me and for you. And so as we read this text, our heart should bring us back to this. Though we would magnify all kinds of other things, God, because of his deep love for you, magnifies you in Jesus Christ. And our call in that is whether for the first time or for the 10,000th time and 10,000 more times beyond that, that our hearts would turn towards him and magnify him again as well. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you do not favor us because of our political acuity because of our religious strength, because of our anything, except just that you love us. And so, Lord, teach us to see beyond, not to see past, but to see beyond and through all the theological truths to see your personhood. Teach us to set our hearts before your character. And Lord, even as we would be steeped in all the theological goodness of who you are in your word, let us respond to you primarily, centrally, as people having been met by our good Father, who is accomplishing great things for us and through us, and on behalf of us, in your Savior, your Son, our brother, Jesus Christ. For truly, Lord... It is only in your name that we can pray these things. Amen.